You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is author Adam Sass. We're talking about his debut novel, Surrender Your Sons, a queer teen thriller set in a conversion center in Costa Rica. Kirkus Reviews described Surrender Your Sons as a hard-to-read story with hard-to-stop reading writing, and Jessica Kluess called Adam Sass one of the most talented new voices in YA. In addition to his writing, Adam is a recurring co-host on Slayer Fest 98, a popular podcast about the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Adam Sass, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. I am, I, what an intro. I love that. <laughs> that was amazing. I was like, oh my gosh, did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like you should get used to it as you, as you go on your press tour. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, press tours are very much um, a, weird, uh, a weird thing to go through when you have even a mild case of imposter syndrome. You're a little just like, no, it's not. It's really bad. You know? <laughs> Well, given the the nature of this book and, and what it's about, we're going to get into some dark topics pretty quickly. Um, I know, yeah. <laughs> and as I mentioned in that intro, this book takes place at a conversion center. So for listeners who might not know, can you briefly explain what conversion therapy is? Of course. Um, conversion therapy is, um, well, um, you know, I'll give you the Webster's Dictionary definition first. It's, it's basically, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous and discredited uh, practice. Um, it can be either, you know, scientific, medical, you know, a doctor's office, therapist's office, or in a religious center um, that attempts to, through so-called therapy, change someone's uh, sexual orientation or uh, gender expression. And specifically change it from a queer right. identity to a, a straight or cisgender. Definitely. Identity. It is definitely the, the motive is to destroy queer identities. Um, and, and and make as heteronormative um, as possible. And how common is conversion therapy today? It's shockingly still very common. Um, that is something that uh, comes up a bit in these discussions. Is it, it doesn't necessarily have to take place in a in a in a in a dramatic you know center that you know that takes place in, in surrender your sons. It could be just your local pastor could be your local priest it's anybody who is who is trying to do that so that definitely pervasive but the actual act of conversion therapy as it's more traditionally known um is still very widespread there there are thousands of survivors who are currently going through this well and so what drew you to this topic for your novel and and in particular what made you want to write a teen novel about conversion therapy well i came at it a little from the side because this was something where you know, it, it, it came from a little, you know, not, uh, not as noble beginnings. Cause I def I wanted to write, um, I had, I had loved, I had loved, um, Inglorious Bastards, the Quentin mm-hmm, Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I was kind of, uh, you know, very, very j- jacked by that movie, obviously. And, uh, I wanted to write a story. Uh, I, I write a big revenge extravaganza, but for queer people. Um, and one of these sort of, um, and I wanted it to be like this ensemble. I wanted it to be um, a little on the action adventure side, even though we're talking about a, a little bit of a heavy topic here. I wanted it to be a big uh, story of queer victory. And mm-hmm. um, it seemed to me that the, that the root of a lot of our, uh, the queer community's ills is conversion therapy. It is in the denial and attempt, attempted destruction of the queer self. 
And conversion therapy holds a very, very kind of dark, strange place in people's minds. Um, it's been known for, for a while as um, kind of wrongfully as um, like electroshock therapy that I know when um, Vice President Pence uh, came into power, there was a lot of talk because, you know, he had supported stuff in the past. Um, right, right. And a lot of a lot of a lot of like shorthand people use on, online will be like, oh, he's down for like, electrocuting gay kids. Um, which not trying to invalidate that he's definitely uh definitely kind of according to things that he has supported in the past would be kind of up for that but i think the thing was about is that they're not really using electroshock therapies because it's much more pernicious and um emotional abuse uh, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. is something that i wanted to first sort of correct you know the readers are not going to open this book and see giant electro machines and uh, zapping because a lot of that is you know electroshock therapy can be very uh, electroconvulsive therapy as it's known could can be really very helpful for people who have you know disorders that that can treat um <laughs> but uh with this with conversion therapy it's it's so mis- misunderstood very often and underestimated it's been my experience that i've noticed people um tend to downplay emotional abuse as much as, yeah, yeah. as like physical abuse so I, I wanted to kind of draw a very direct line between emotional abuse and how that can really escalate into something extremely violent and extremely destructive for everybody in this story. So that was something where I thought that was a, a challenge I wanted to meet and show, well, how could this so-called therapy that really ropes in so many people every year and does great long-term damage, great in the vast sense, not in the it's, right, it's right. good sense um like how does something that does that much damage and you know and and does that much and and provokes that much trauma um into a queer person how can that be an extravaganza story how can that be a revenge story how could that be a story of queer victory and you know and we've seen so many great conversion therapy stories the miseducation of cameron post uh most recently um the memoir boy erased um uh, you know, and they each show like a different part of that. So I would say if yeah. anybody's looking to read um, or watch conversion therapy as it as it is most realistically, definitely start with those. What Surrender Your Sons is is attempting to do is take something that a lot of people sort of know a lot about or think they know a lot about and really crank up the emotional extremes uh, to tell a much broader uh, queer victory story. And I think it's really interesting, I, b- both sort of aspects of that that you talk about, because um, you talk about it being a queer victory story, and you also talk about how, like, the the sort of popular portrayals that people are most familiar with are ones that tend to be more sort of um, extremely physically abusive. And I think that's interesting. My first exposure to conversion therapy was, but I'm a cheerleader. It was the, like, Natasha <laughs> Leone movie, which yes. is very much, like, it it is a queer victory story. It also makes conversion therapy look extremely tame. Yes. <laughs> and I, I guess I'm just sort of curious, uh, I, going back to that sort of first point, why specifically a teen novel? I think with teen novels and teen YA novels, when I first started writing this, I've been writing this for years. This was, this was the Hunger Games heyday. So, hmm. I mean, definitely YA's bread and butter now and forever and definitely back then in the Hunger Games days was you know, these teens were completely on their own um, and they are going to lead a revolution. That was pretty much every uh, major 
teen yeah, YA yeah. book back then. And so that was something where it seemed to really mesh really well is another thing is that these popular uh, or more, more well-known conversion therapy stories, like you said, are a little on the, they're a little on the quieter side because it is a little bit more, because first of all, Boy Erased is, is, is his lived experience. So you can't really, right. you know, put the two together, you know, sometimes. And I know a lot of people, um, you know, I, I sometimes see reviews of, of Boy Erased where they're like, <laughs> I've seen people say it wasn't really that bad because he was only there for like a little bit and, you know, and all that. And there, there's all hmm. sorts of responses people have that are really, I think this is the mark, um, but you know, but that is something where that story in general tells a quieter story. It tells a, it tells his story um, about his one experience, and he's been very vocal about like my experience is not the only experience in this. So to that, what I wanted to tell with this was, and I think that that's why the teen aspect of this was so important was that in a in a young adult's life, this is a, for a lot of people the most vulnerable crossroadsy time mm, mm-hmm. um and i want you're going to see an ensemble of, of teens in this book who are all at varying degrees of activists you know very self-possessed don't need a lot of deprogramming from the from and then some of some of them are a lot more in the tank some of them have been yeah, there yeah. for a lot longer and then through pure survival have had to adapt to this point where they're not really up for a revolution they want to just quietly get through this as quickly as possible. And I think I really was interested in seeing that hodgepodge of different identities and experiences that ultimately leads to a revolution story. Um, and that just felt the, the bigness of a revolution story, the the high emotion, the high drama, that's something that YA does so well, um, is that you can really tap into the emotions, like first love and, um, and, and s- sense of self and identity and... Um, mm-hmm you know, learning to kind of that, that's the sort of the first moment you're really sort of breaking away from your family and realizing that maybe they don't have all the answers and then you have to form your own person. It's really this crossroadsy time. It's very, very rich. That's why a lot of, you know, very, very emotional, high emotion stories are in YA and YA is doing some of the, the YA is also doing some of the best intersectional diverse uh, yeah, work yeah, of, of pretty sure. much any medium right now. And that was something where I knew like this story could thrive in a YA market because so many people have been trailblazing every year um, in this and, and making new inroads where where the I think the, the YA audience is definitely really primed for consuming a story like this and being really, really on board. There's a market for this. So this is a really painful topic for many queer people and many people in the queer community, in different queer communities, have a complicated relationship with media that centers queer pain. So, like, Andrew Sean Greer addresses this in Less, which is his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. His title character is accused by another gay man of being a bad gay because his gay characters always suffer without reward, which is a charge that has been leveled at Greer himself before Less came out. So how how do you navigate that space with a topic like yours? It's tricky, and I just knew there would be no tap dancing around it for a book like this. Where you know, and also in YA, uh, you know, some of the some of the most successful books right now in in the in the LGBTQIA space have been um, very sunny stories. There's there's stories that are you know um, about queer victory mm-hmm. in 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 not so like against all odds ways. So I knew I'd be going into this knowing that a lot of people maybe this wouldn't be their cup of tea. I mean, and even so far in like the advanced, uh, you know, in the advanced 
reviews and you know response we've been getting to this it's generally been very, very good. And it's been wonderful to see, but there is always, you know, a lot of the reviews do come with caveats of like, well, if you're sensitive to queer pain and that just seems to be kind of happening, like maybe give it a skip. I mean, I think even Publishers Weekly this week said, you know, they were, they were like, oh, maybe mm. skip this if you're really sensitive to queer pain, which I understand. I mean, there's, we, we include some, tr- some content trigger warnings at the beginning of the book. Um, and, you know, there are some stuff that's just kind of unavoidable with telling a story like this because it's one of those things where I've never really been one to say, you know, we only need to show this one part of queer life in order for it to be healthy for, for queer people. First of all, I myself, you know, this is a book that I would have wanted to read when I was yeah. coming out of the closet. This is so I knew first of all, I was pleasing the audience of one who was writing it. <laughs> and a lot of times I do believe that like I you know I wrote this book for me. I wrote this book um during a time in my life where I was going through a lot of changes. I just told and I had been working in um in LA at different Hollywood desks for a while and I had always sort of edited myself and you know never really front and centered queer characters. And I, this was just the book that I was like, this is what I want to tell. I want to tell a big explosive story. And to tell that and to tell a revenge story, you need to have a bad thing happen to a queer person up front. So, I mean, I do think there is like conversations to be had about like, don't just senselessly show a bunch of queer pain. I mean, the really the, you know, the queer pain that I show in this book is to set up a success later. Um, It's to make the victory more sweet. And on a more personal note, We'd been seeing this ever since the debate around 2015 when marriage equality passed. We had been seeing a lot of this um, thought that as soon as marriage equality passed, uh, queer troubles were over. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That we were done. Which is not true. (laughs) Moving on next. Yeah, of course it's not true. Like, and and we all said it at that time. And it was just, there was such a rush to be like, okay, great. We never have to talk about it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, it's only opened up another can of worms, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things where this is a minority group that you're never going to be done, even just from the othering and isolation of not being part of the majority could be its own, you know, trauma, whether or not somebody is visiting that intentionally upon you, um, you're living in a society that is built around heteronormativity so and of course we're seeing like right now all of these laws uh, are all of these protections being questioned and coming up all um, the time like workplace (laughs) yeah it's very precarious it's so precarious it all it took was one bad person getting in to 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 undo a lot of stuff and make or throw everything into jeopardy and it can all go away like it's very easy to go away so this was something where i what i how I started from is I kind of shut out the noise of, oh, should a queer story be this? Should a queer story be that? What's right? Or what's a good example? What's a bad example? I just put all of that aside. And in my head, I had a teen character who I knew was growing up in the age of post It Gets Better videos, yeah, yeah. Um, which I believe have been so, so important um, and doing such a force of positive good. However, you know, like everything, like marriage equality, there is a, there is a negative reaction inversely to that. And I wanted to show a kid who had a bad situation at home, who all the other queer people he knew, his boyfriend, lived in this kind of glee paradise fantasy um, world. where <laughs> fantasy world where they were like, 
they had it good and they were good. And so I, like, what does that do? And I wanted to ask like, well, what does that do to it, to a queer, you know, closeted kid to see all uh, these videos and to see all this representation of movies and TV of like great parents and amazing and partner coming over for dinner and or whatever, <laughs> just living, living your big queer life in a big city or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, what does that do? Because I know, like, I mean, that was, that's my joke always is that like, oh, that's definitely something um, a gay guys love is to see other gay guys, not them having a great time. <laughs> they really, they really love seeing people that are not them thriving. So I really wanted to show like, okay, well, what's, what's that kid going through? Like, yeah, ask these questions that really didn't have an answer, which is uh, my character, Connor Major, has just come out at the beginning of the book to his mom. His, his boyfriend really kind of pushed him into it and really, really, you know, in a positive way, pushed him into it, but nevertheless did push him into it because yeah. he wanted an out boyfriend that he could put on social media and, you know, do all the stuff. The Instagram you know, was, boyfriend, right? That's the... <laughs> the Instagram boyfriend. He wanted the Instagram boyfriend, which he should, he, she should have, you know, I think that, but like, I think he maybe misjudged the situation that Connor would be in and Connor wanted to have that. Connor wanted that. He wanted all of that. And I, he, in, in his zeal to to obtain that and to, and to make his boyfriend happy, um, you know, he came out before he was really in a in a super secure place. And then just through bad luck, you know, his mom reacted extremely negatively. Um, and that kind of sets him on this path that brings him to a conversion therapy place. You know, the book asks a lot of questions with no answers like that, which is, well, was it good that Connor came out because if he hadn't gone to this camp, he would not have met everybody at this camp and, you know, and helped them through, through this and been the catalyst for a lot of good change for them. And on the other hand, like, should he have just stayed closet? I mean, it's, it's one of those things yeah, where yeah. I think a lot of young queer people and, and queer people of any age are asking themselves right now if they're closeted or out to only a certain degree um, is it's a constant negotiation. It's, is this safe yet? What is good? What is bad? Am I being a bad queer person if I don't come out? Am I missing mm. a lot of time myself? You know, I came out a lot later, maybe, you know, not, not by my standards, but now I came out when I was 20. And every year I spent closeted, I deeply regret. So, but it, that was the time that was right for me to come out then. So, you know, it's one of those impossible situations uh, where you're not really sure what is the right choice. Um, which of course is great drama for books. So that was <laughs> why you started the beginning. How much did you know about conversion therapy going in? What was the research process like for you? Um, I knew enough about it, but I probably was one of those folks who um, only knew that it was, I, I, I'd seen, but I'm a cheerleader. I had seen the SNL sketches where the clearly still gay camp counselor is, talking about how much, you know, he loves his wife and is leaving, you know, the single, you know, like the, oh, there was, yeah, it, yeah. it was the butt of jokes. So I probably had this extremely skewed, not all the answers version um, and definitely did not have an appreciation for the lasting trauma it leaves on someone. So this was something where um, this book took about seven years and I, and I wrote several different big overhaul versions of it. So the book people are going to get in, um, in stores is, miles different than how it began. So it really began more of as a very, very light conceit. Um, mm -hmm. And then the more I read, the more I saw, you know, then the book Boy Race came out, then 
the movie Boy Erased came out, then I got the pleasure of being able to interview Garrett Conley himself, read these other books. Then there was, uh, uh, there's a, there was a Showtime movie in 2014 called Kidnapped for Christ. It was a documentary. Mm-hmm. And that, that informed Surrender Your Sons probably the most because that was, um, it's now closed. It's called Escuela Caribe. It was a, it was a conversion camp in the Dominican Republic where uh, kids would be wealthy evangelical American kids would be taken out of bed in the middle of the night and brought to this island nightmare paradise place, like where it would be, you know, it was, it was shock. It was, it was um, culture shock. It was to take them out of their environment and, and bring them here. Escuela Caribe was a uh, religious run, but it was not just conversion therapy for, for queer people. It was, um, uh, there was, there was elements of like, behavior modification and, and, and drug rehabilitation for you. Know, it was basically, as it was described in the documentary, a dumping ground for wealthy evangelical parents. Hmm. So the more I became exposed to this, the more appreciation I had for how vast of a problem this is and how lasting the, the marks can be. So this was, so that's definitely like, I definitely credit um, the last few years of, of conversion therapy stories for, uh, opening my eyes to that. So now the Surrender Your Sons you see, the, the Nightlight, which is the name of the camp um, that you see in the book, is a reflection of that. It became a lot less dramatically physical, a lot less, yeah. you know, electroshock, um, and became way more psychological mind games and control games. And, and you know, it became a much more interesting story because it became honest, because it was about... Um, really about who is psychologically giving up control. Um, and you have these kids who are very disenfranchised. They are completely cut off from their homes. And that really is the core crisis in this book. And one of the characters, the, the director of the camp, says that there is no, if you escape, there is no going home. Home sent you to us. So that's, yeah, yeah. that is really the core crisis, which is like, they have to escape. But what happens when they do? Will they go home? How can they go home? Will they just be sent right back? Uh, so that really becomes a matter of they need to not just escape, but also close the camp down. And luckily they have um, insights. Some of the campers who have been there a while have discovered that the camp is hiding several dark secrets that could get it shut down. So that really becomes the driving mystery of the story is it's not just about escape, which is about as when we leave, this place can never open again and we can never come back here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune into our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8 right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Adam Sass, whose debut novel, Surrender Your Sons, tells the story of a group of queer teenagers who are kidnapped to a conversion therapy center in Costa Rica. So I think now is a good time to have you read a little bit from the novel. Um, Wonderful. So why don't you just set up for us what you're going to read? What are we going to hear? These are the opening pages. This is um, this Great. is chapter one. Uh, it's called Mom's Ultimatum. And so this is just a very simple scene between Connor uh, and his mother. And they're at dinner. And it really sets up uh, what I explained before, which is um, Connor has 
recently come out a few weeks prior. Um, it didn't go well. And what we're faced with here really is about how can Connor and his single mother, um, can they live in the same house? The, the tension is really ratcheting up. So that's what we'll be, that's what we'll be hearing right now. Great. Take it away. Chapter one, mom's ultimatum. This war has gone on long enough, but not for my mother. Even though she's been in an upbeat mood since she arrived home from work, I know better than to drop my guard. It's a trap somehow. Her cheeriness lingers over our home-cooked meal like the Saharan sun, omnipresent and pitiless. She thinks I don't have the guts to ask the question that will blow apart our fragile ceasefire, the question that has dogged me for over a week, but I very much do have the guts. Hey, so when do I get my phone back? I ask calmly without demands or tantrums. Nevertheless, the question ignites a fire in my mother's eyes that has been kindling underneath our brutally pleasant dinner. Mom shoves away her plate of half-eaten chicken and asks, Your phone? My question is the scandal of the century, apparently. Are you serious? I'm dead serious, but I shrug. It's crucial that I project an aura of casual indifference, even though my heart sinks with each day I'm cut off from Ario and my friends. Mom would keep my phone forever if she could. Last Thanksgiving, my uncle scolded me. You treat that thing like it's your second dick. He's not wrong, but I've been phoneless for almost two weeks, and this battle for my sanity has reached D-Day levels of slaughter. It's just that I begin cautiously, remounting my defense. Could I get a time frame of when I'll get it back? Are you kidding me? Mom's conviction grows as every muscle tightens in my neck. You are being punished, Connor. I didn't do anything wrong. A reckless energy seizes me as I leap from my chair in a foolish attempt to intimidate her with my height. As of my 17th birthday, I've accepted the reality that I'm tapped out at five and a half feet. Don't come at me with your trash attitude, and you're not excused. Mom grasps the silver cross hanging outside of her nursing scrub top and kisses it. No, mashes it to her lips. Her typical plea to Christ to help her out of another fine mess her heathen son has dragged her into. She fans her hands downward for me to sit, and with an extra loud huff, I oblige. Mom and I take turns sneering at each other, a performance battle to prove which of us is the more aggrieved party. She blows tense air through O-circled lips, and I pissily toss a sweat-dampened curl from my eyes. Our clanking swamp cooler of an air conditioner doesn't provide any relief from the latest heat wave tearing through Ambrose. However, the stench of hot July chicken shit from the farm next door manages to travel on the breeze just fine. I ladle peppermint ice cream into my mouth at a mindless speed until a glob of pink goo drips onto my shorts next to a hot sauce stain, which is from yesterday. It's the same Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week-worthy outfit I've donned all summer. Gym shorts and a baggy hoodie with the sleeves chopped off. What do I care how I look? Because of mom, I might never see my boyfriend again. When I was closeted, all my boyfriend Ario squawked about was how important it was to come out. It would save my life. Food would taste better. Fresh lavender would fill the air. Well, I did that. I've been out for months, but I'm starting to think he was only repeating shit he heard from YouTubers who were either lying or lucky. If this is what being out is like, he can keep it. When I first came out to my mom, I didn't mention having a boyfriend. I enjoyed a frigid but unpunished summer of mom dealing with my queerness as nothing more than some unpleasant hypothetical. But then she found out there was an actual boy involved with lips and stubble and dirty, filthy, no-good intentions. That's when she confiscated my phone, 
The rest came rapid fire. Laptop gone, Wi-Fi cut off. My friends have been banned from coming over, all except for Vicky, my best friend and ex-girlfriend, a.k.a. my mother's last hope for a straight son. Not that that matters. Vicky stopped having time to hang out as soon as her son was born. I don't know how she's going to handle our senior year while taking care of a newborn. The baby isn't mine, but try telling that to my suddenly desperate for a grandchild mother. Gay? Jesus wouldn't like that. Knock up your girlfriend? Well, babies are a blessing and at least you're not gay. Scowling, I licked the drying peppermint off my fingers, where remnants of electric purple nail polish still hide under my cuticles. Mom stripped off my color when she took my phone. It was a merciless raid. She was weirdly violent about it, too, plunged my hands into a dish of alcohol, and voila, no more purple fingers. Just manly, pale white sausages as the Lord intended. If Ario were here, he'd repaint them. Ario makes everything okay again. I forgot to tell you earlier, Mom says, commanding her voice to soften. It turns out I was right. Your dad's birthday present for you did get turned around in the mail. I roll my eyes and scrape the last dregs of ice cream from my bowl. My birthday was Memorial Day, and we're currently well past the 4th of July. Turned around in the mail. Clearly the man forgot. I've made peace with Dad missing, ignoring, and forgetting every single thing about my life. But, like, don't try to trick me into thinking he gives a shit. A puffy yellow envelope with my name scrawled across the face lies propped against a candle in the center of the table. Whatever Dad left for me in that envelope, it'll be something half-assed. I'm ignoring it. You know what probably happened? It's that international shipping, you can't count on it, Mom continues, eager to sell me on this lie, whether it's her own feeble creation or something Dad made her swallow. Sure, yeah, international shipping, I say. Everything takes two months because it's the 1900s. They still send mail across in the Titanic. You'll believe anything, won't you? Mom's smile freezes and then dies. Victory. An evil warmth fills my lungs as I savor landing a hit finally. Unfortunately, as usual, guilt follows. Dad put Mom through the ringer for years, lying, raging, drinking, disappearing, and I just squeezed lemon juice into her most painful wound. I don't relax my scowl, though. If she stays vulnerable, there's a decent chance she'll give up and return my phone. Thank you. So you talked a little bit about how Ario's experience and his sort of desire not to not to go back into the closet mm-hmm. informs the kind of power dynamic between them and um, pushes Connor out of the closet a little bit. Right. Do you think it was fair for him to push his boyfriend to come out? And do you see Ario as responsible for what happens to Connor? I think it's one of those situations. I see Surrender Yourself as one of my favorite things in any drama anywhere is when it's just a preponderance of things like the it's just a perfect storm where it's just Mm -hmm. the weather and everything else kind of can converge to make a a really chaotic situation happen and that's definitely something I wanted to play with in Surrender Your Son which is just all of these people have built their lives out of a house of cards and it takes very little to have it all come tumbling down. And so with Ario... That precarity. That precarity, exactly. And so you see how as soon as Connor even sets foot in this camp, he immediately starts changing things. Just his... Um, you, can, you can already tell from that reading, Connor is a very spirited... He's, cl- he's closeted, but he is, he is mouthy. He's got opinions. He is not afraid to tell people off. He has no protection on his mouth. He just kind of says what he wants to say. <laughs> So, you know, right away, you know, that's a troublemaker. That's someone who, you know, in conversion therapy, that is something where it would immediately start causing chaos. So, and that's luckily what we see. 
But I, to your question about, you know, is Aria responsible? Yes, in this way, but really, I mean, I, I, I make it very, very clear in this book that it can all really be traced to, you know, it's, 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 it's the parent's job to protect yeah. this kid, you know, and it's one of those things where Aria was looking out for himself and, and then there's, you know, and there's, this story really evolves from this point. We do meet Aria, we see different layers and, and, and different colors to, to their story together where there is a push-pull between them where it, you know, it doesn't quite absolve Arya and it doesn't quite absolve Connor. There's a few things where it's just, it's very messy. It's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I do not approve of, you know, pushing someone out before they're ready, but this is something that Connor wanted so much. And, you know, you could see, you know, people who are very young and, you know, want a lot. And a lot of what, you know, and a lot of what our few queer stories that are out there have been saying, which is just your life begins as soon as you come out. Yeah. That everything before then is is false and a lie and everything you know and I and that's something that I really wanted to investigate, which is it's it's really not a you're closeted and then there's a there's a hard moment and then you're out. Well, and as queer people, we really want to believe that, right? Like we want to believe that. Oh yeah. <laughs> everything, that everything is magically solved once you. Oh my gosh, it's in. the beginning of your problem. I mean, like it's it's one of those things where like it's it's an ongoing thing. Just like there's there's no magic bullet um to anything in life, least of all coming out. However, it is the next step. So it's one of those things where you know, in general, in the past, I've been a big proponent of me personally. I, I met all my best friends. I met all the most wonderful people. All the most wonderful things in life happened to me after I came out. However. That doesn't mean I was this like non-entity before I came out. I mm-hmm. had lots of good memories and there were happy times when I was closeted. It's just one of those things where, um, and I go into this in the book, which is just, it goes down to the family and the parents and it's yeah. um, who holds emotional strings on these kids, who holds financial strings on these kids, because a lot of them, if they're under 18, they still got to go to school. They have, a lot of them aren't paying for their own stuff. A lot of a lot of parents who respond badly to a coming out might even hold college up for ransom uh, for some of these kids that there's a lot of their lives that they kind of hold in their hand. Um, and this book is, and me are very pro be sneaky. If you <laughs> even think like they're going to be a problem, like sneaky, fake it, lie to them, have a side life, you know, like this is one of those things where it's very much pro have your own life be smart, be careful, protect yourself, you know, only, yeah. only have them. If you, if you think you're going to have like a really like, if you think it's going to be really that bad, definitely do not put yourself in, in harm's way with that, you know, emotionally, financially, even physically, even it's very pro do what you can to survive. And yeah. that includes lying until you have your college paid for lie until you have your, you can afford your own phone. You know, like if you really, really, can't stand, you know, um, if you know if it's livable or not. And I yeah. would say if it's doing real emotional damage to you, you know, find a way sooner rather than later to make your own money to pay for your own place and car and phone. A few things that you would need to, you know, really look out for yourself in the, because so that way it removes those strings from your family. So the worst that could happen is you have like a bad fight and then you just don't go there anymore. Well, so let's let's talk about Connor's relationship with his mother because it it's very complicated. And as much as she puts him through, he doesn't hate her. And I mean, in the book, no. you give all of those reasons that you just described for why some people appear not to hate their families, but it doesn't seem like that's exactly what's yeah. going on with Connor. So 
No. Why not? Why doesn't he hate her? It's hard. I mean, I mean, I think even in these first few pages, you can see that Connor is, I mean, especially in, in Connor's specific situation, he was raised by a single mom. It's, he witnessed firsthand his dad put her through the ringer on a lot of different issues and, and they became very codependent. He, she really depends on him for a lot. He depended on her for a lot. And, and that's the thing people, I, th- I don't think maybe super get um, who are outside of this life is that you could have like a really nasty relationship with the parent. You could have a bigoted parent and there's still so many good memories potentially with that parent. It's very messy. It's very complicated. It's, you know, and it's, it goes into, I did not want Connor to just have it very easy and say, oh, well, you know, she was always bad. She never had a kind word. It was always bad. Da, da, da. You know, it's, I, I mean, I personally, not in my own life, thank God, you know, but like read enough stories, you read enough things, you listen, you talk to enough people, you do get the sense of just like, wow, I mean, the, the reason people stay in these family units is there's so much, and it's, it's so easier said than done to like say goodbye to your whole family. Yeah. There's great memories. There's Christmases. There's what that means for the future that, you know, one of the campers we meet later, Marcos, um, who's my, one of my favorite characters, basically says as much in the middle of this, because he's been there for a long time. Marcos is a lifer. He, he's been there for at least six or seven months while Connor's there his first day. But Marcos is just, it's, it's, if it's, even remotely easy for Connor, it's definitely not easy for Marcos because his family is in the church completely. You know, his dad yeah. is a is a uh, is a reverend himself. Every person he knows is wrapped up in the church. So to leave all that behind to kind of do the what people kind of tend to say is the easy thing to do. You just tell them that you're gay and you're out and that's that and 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 they got to get on board or or buy. That for an 18 year old for anybody like that's saying goodbye to like your whole lived life yeah I couldn't uh, write this story without honoring that for each one of them like and and that's one of those things where like the more happy memories I filled this book with is because throughout the book Connor is remembering happy moments with his mom almost like he's reminding himself of this because he needs to yeah because to, to think about not being around her anymore is is too unbearable. So that's something where, you know, I wanted to, the more you bring in these stories of like happiness and good times and what you'd lose if you don't, I mean, it just makes it all the more cruel what's happening to them because you're, you're this camp is forcing these kids into a terrible situation and the family is forcing them into a terrible yeah. situation. These, these kids have so to that grow home up. question you were mentioning before, right? Like yeah. it, <laughs> home sent you here. So where is home? home sent them here. So it's like, how, how do you, how do you square with that? And it's, and, and the answer is not easy, not easily. There's no answer. So you mentioned Marcus and he has a refrain. Um, it was so kind of you to visit me in my loneliness. Yes. Can you talk about that? Where does it come from? How does it connect to the themes of the novel in your mind? It's So Kind of You to Visit Me in My Loneliness is a quote that's really been um, a marker throughout all the different versions of this. It's, uh, it technically is a line from uh, MGM's Wizard of Oz. Um, it is, uh, it's kind of an, a thrown away line that the witch says to Dorothy when uh, she captures her, the fly monkeys catch Dorothy and bring her to the castle. When she kind of first sees her, you know, the witch is saying, you know, it's so kind of you to visit me in my loneliness. It's sort of an old timey turn of phrase of like, so nice of you to visit this old lady. <laughs> Marcos, he has adopted this because like I said, he's a lifer. He's sort of this, 
mother hen character to all the younger because there's there's tiers of of campers in there there's um overs unders and beginners overs are kids who are over 18 uh unders are like high school age kids who are under 18 but still you know adults and then you have beginners who are really around middle school and so marcos has has sort of taken it upon himself to be he's a he's a he's a people pleaser so he wants to feel Mm. very useful and for all of the negativity that is swarming through his life and his head right now, Marcos very much wants to feel useful. That is the only positive experience he's getting in life right now. So he sees it as his job to sort of be the caretaker of these kids as they come and go. So he's been there so long. He's seen so many campers come and go. He adopted this aloha, which is, he says it for his goodbye and hello every time a camper arrives or departs he says it's so kind of you to visit me in my loneliness it's just something that he seems to have developed to protect himself as a way of it's it's a way of like basically making sure that he doesn't get heartbroken every time someone leaves and he can't leave Mm. um in that he he it's him reminding himself that he has appointed himself that he's not leaving because of the circuit he's really taking control he's saying like oh no no it's my job to sort of be this watcher on the wall here um and i'm not supposed to go because i'm supposed to stay here and make sure these kids are okay because he is terrified of how empty he feels his life would be outside of the island uh back home if he if he left yeah. So um, that definitely is a refrain that comes throughout the book. And it eventually starts to take on multiple meanings because him and Connor develop a bond. They're sort of the two sort of lead campers there. Um, and Connor is definitely this troublemaker, you know, wise ass. We're getting out of here and I'm doing this and mm-hmm, I'm saying that. Mm-hmm. He, for him, it's a little, he's become sort of the Ario to, Mar- to Marcos in that he's like, well, what we got to just do is we just got to get out of here. And then that's <laughs> it. Simple as that, you know. And Marcos is really the one who keeps reminding everybody that it's just like, yeah, it's going to be super exciting to get out of here and close this place down and, and say bye. But like, yeah, what where do we go life, from there? Like, where do our lives look like yeah. out there? And he's, and he's not wrong to bring that up. Yeah. So without giving away too much, one theme that you deal with is the importance of sticking together instead of acting alone. And that, that happens on a bunch of different levels in the book. Do you see solidarity as a necessary component in breaking that cycle of queer pain? And what does that look like in the real world? 100% that is the only way forward out of queer pain. And it's the only way forward for the queer community. This is something where one of the characters says that frequently, we're less of a target if we're together. And so this really, Surrender Your Sons was something where I wanted to show Connor, who's, who's really sort of an avatar of myself, who's a, you know, who's a cis white gay kid, who's thought he's at the lowest end of the, you know, of, mm. he's at the worst end of the stick. And then he gets to this camp where he sees characters who have um, different intersectionalities, who have way different, sometimes worse um, uh, life experiences than he does. And he realizes that his, his, his trauma is not the worst trauma. Um, and it's not really a trauma contest, but it is more of a he does learn to, it's not just him alone. It turns into, it comes from him saying, I got to get out of here. I can't spend here. I got to go back to Ario. I got to go to... I can't leave until every one of these kids can get out of here. Like it's, it's really what I wanted to say larger how I feel about the queer community, which can very often resort to these different sections. And you know, white gays can definitely have been accused many times, rightfully, of being a little 
you know, selfish and not inclusive of everybody in the queer community. And I really wanted this to be sort of a, a rule book, a guidebook for if not the whole queer community, at least for white gays to just be like, this is how we're going to get out of this all together. There is no escape for you if these other folks are left behind. Yeah. I was seeing that so much, especially in the last few years, and it was just driving me nuts. And uh, this definitely was the sort of thing where I said, like, even if you take it from a purely selfish standpoint, you will never, you will never, ever, ever have the escape you think you can get on your own if you do this on your own. Like, you have the only way out is by all of us um, working together and listening to other people and realizing that you don't have all the answers. Connor does not have all the answers about how to get out of the island. He has only been on the island for a day. Um, there are people who have been there for six months, seven months, who have been plotting this escape. They know the way out a lot better than Connor does. And you, they really only start to see success when those people start being listened to. So that was definitely my, my way of going about doing that. For the best and possibly worst in industrial, avant-garde and outside music, Tune in to The Other Side of the Tracks, Tuesday mornings from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. on KSQD, K-Squid, Community Radio for Santa Cruz County. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Adam Sass, whose debut novel, Surrender Your Sons, tells the story of a group of queer teenagers who are kidnapped to a conversion therapy center in Costa Rica. In the acknowledgments, you talk about the way this book has changed from your early drafts to the published form. And you gave us this sort of brief overview, but I'm going to make you talk about something that you say you're not going to talk about in the acknowledgments, Let's which do is it. <laughs> the fact that it was originally a fantasy novel set in the 80s. So yes. tell me about those early iterations <laughs> and how the heck did you, like, oh how the God. heck did the revision process lead to a contemporary realist thriller? Like, how literally nuts and bolts did you do that <laughs> i it's wild it's something where like i i really wanted like um i will definitely t i will definitely talk about this right now but i will say i'll i'll probably once the book is out and it's been out for a few months i'll probably release like a page outline of like here's what the first version was like <laughs> it's just not good like that was one of the things where like it was like i wrote this back in 2013 was my first book and i really wanted I don't know how it got into fantasy, but it basically was this thing where it was always about Connor versus this camp. And he was always on an island and it was always a conversion camp. I had it set during different times because like I said it before, I said it during the 80s because I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, it was 2013. It was, and I was one of those folks who was like, oh, it's done. You know, it's, it's not a relevant thing right now. Mm. And so I just said, okay, well, I'll set it in the 80s when, you know, it was just a really, really, you know, dark time for queer, for queer people. And um, that'll be why I said it during that time. So that's why it was 80s. It was from a place of full ignorance. And then um, the, the, the sci-fi elements of it were, you know, so we've got it, we've always had this protagonist, Connor Major, and we've always had this antagonist, the Reverend, who mm -hmm. runs the camp. At one point, it was, I went a little X-Men-y, because I'm I, right now on Slayer Fest in the summer, we are talking about, um, we are going through X-Men. I'm such an X-Men fan. So we're doing the summer of X-Men there. So what something that X-Men does a lot, which is just obviously like the powers are a metaphor for yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff and queer stuff probably a lot. So I was like, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be really clever and I'm going to show... I've been trying to do the, like, okay, well, how does this emotional harm that the camp is doing translate into something physical and visual and, you know, movie excitement? 
And so it was something where Connor himself, it was confusing because not all the campers had, it was just Connor and the Reverend had these, um, it was, it was almost like a, it was like a superhero story where it wasn't like known. There was no rule book. There wasn't any like, oh, here's where the person explains and here's how society knows what these people are. It was just, they had these powers that were kind of like lightning based powers. And it was all this like energy. It was all this like energy that was inside of Mm. each of them. And, uh, and the Reverend had these, but they were, you know, because he was so, um, because he was so twisted and using it for, you know, because it was all very um, chi centered because his, his chi was very poisoned his energy was very unpredictable and dark and um, uncontrolled, but he really wanted to kind of learn these secrets from someone like Connor, who's, who was a little more pure and his, his, his energy was a little more, it was, it was very <laughs> a mess. So, but it was the same story. So what happened, so how we got from that to this where, oh my God, just pretend I didn't even just say the last five minutes. <laughs> Nothing like that happens. It is a straight up, just regular folks, regular timeline energy how we got from that to that is um that's the other thing when you're selling a book is i didn't realize that it's one part selling it's one part writing the book and it's another part learning the industry so Mm -hmm. i was writing a book for the first time and i didn't know anything about the book industry i thought i could do it on the fly bad idea or maybe a good idea but I, i learned like i learned and i failed a lot along the way so one of my first rejections um, in like 2015 was because it was like an, it was like an adult novel because I really didn't know much about YA at that time. It was an adult novel and it was it was still a teen character. So this agent was like, I don't, it's a no for me, but please just this is YA. Like it was the way you're. I'm writing everything, the big emotions, the art, yeah. the rebellion, the everything. He's like, this is YA. This is writing a very familiar YA thing. You will see a lot more like that. So that's why it became YA. And then a few years later, um, in 2017, I had just had so many rejections. I had had like, I think upwards of 90 rejections at that point. Um, and it wasn't just going anywhere. And there was a, there was a very wonderful agent who, um, who rejected again. She had seen in, like two revisions and rejected mm-hmm. both times. And she just kept saying every single time, she said, she's like, listen, the, the sci-fi stuff is just it's like a weird hat that the store is wearing. Like, so just take it off. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where like, it's just this extra element. It keeps weighing everything down. It's, it's weird. You know, it's just not clicking. Cause I wanted the, the, I wanted the sci-fi stuff for the big, you know, wabang Marvel kind of, you yeah, know, yeah. like explosive, like, Oh, we blow up a whole camp at the end. Um, when it was like, listen, you can, you can, and she was very, very nice. She was like, you can tell a such a more interesting story just with this, like just them at the camp and with this one subplot and the subplot was this um, story that we, that is now the main plot of it, which is there was a very small subplot of this former camper who had been severely injured Ricky. Um, that the Ricky Hannigan, that the, uh, that the camp was covering up what happened to him. And it was, it was tied and it was that the solution of that was tied to like bringing them down. So that was like a very, I had like seven different subplots and that was just a small one. It was like a kind of a side character, you know, a sort of a, a side quest in a video game. Um, and, and she was like, this story is very interesting. Um, and, and the rest of the camp is very interesting. I would throw everything else away. And at the time... But like, literally, how do you do that? That's the part I that know. I want to understand. Like how... <laughs> I, it was a good time because it was right after... It was right after Trump was elected and it was right after the um, inauguration. So it was just, 
it was a clean so I was moving anyway I was like I was in New York we had moved there and things had like not gone well there and we were like coming back to California and I was just it was one of those things where like every part of my life needed a full reboot so it was like this book that I've been working on for years was like going nowhere Trump was getting in we had to move we, we had done this big New York City thing big dreams and it failed and we were kind of like okay we need to just kind of scurry back to california you know lick our wounds and rebuild so during that time i got this full-time job you know i had I'd only previously done like part-time work and freelance stuff and so it was one of those things where like it just started making me feel confident again and then that working taking my mind off of it taking like six months away helped free my mind up to a point where I started thinking about the story again. It was sort of creeping in. Because at first, believe me, I did not take that feedback well. I was like, oh my God, like, you're wrong. You know, and then um, <laughs> didn't like respond to that email that way. No, I just, I was very like, oh, thank you so much for your time. And then like privately, I was like, oh my God, biggest mistake. Then it just started slowly being like, oh, okay. I could see that being that. And you know, I was frustrated with the world building in it too. It wasn't super clicking for me. Uh, so I was like, great, well, if I did this and I could keep this chapter. So there's a few chapters that still remain that way. And then I just removed that and it became a lot lighter. It became a quicker story. It became not lighter in the tone, but like it just became like breezier to write. Yeah. Um, it wasn't carrying all this excess weight. I wasn't having to keep eight different plot lines going. It was just one story. It was Connor at this camp helping everyone get out. And the simplicity of that just made it for like everybody. Like, I mean, I rewrote it and then um, my agent, um, Eric Smith, like he had rejected this book when it was still a fantasy. What's yeah, it? Yeah. You know, and typically what they say to, what they say to authors is like, listen, if it's a no from that agent, do not bring that book back to that person. So I was a little like, you know, and I, and I just, gotten along well with uh you know eric online and he had written me a very nice note um so he had like rejected it in 2016 and then a few months later sent me a very nice email saying like just you know like I, you know i really think you're talented i really believe in you and you know just please make sure you send me whatever the next thing is you know i know it like i know all these rejections are really hard and you know and suck yeah. um, and it's <laughs> still a no but like just make sure whatever the next thing is you send it to me so i had taken enough time it was like a year and a half and then I, I just emailed him, you know, because it's like, I, I was like, okay, well, no one's going to, I had some friends who were like, they're not going to take you to author jail if yeah. you just email him. He's the nicest what do you have to lose? in the world. What are you going to lose? You know, as long as I'm not like harassing him and like going to his door and being like, hey, it's me again. You know, just <laughs> it was one email. He could respond or not respond. And I just wanted to offer it. And I just said, hey, listen, your advice kind of really kind of kept me through your, your, your chin up kind of thing that was just it was above and beyond and it really helped me out in a in a in a bad moment in a dark time. Having said that, I have rebooted this book from scratch. It's a different genre, it's a different this. Here's my here's my pitch. If you want to see it, I shot in the dark. If you want to see it, I would love to send it to you. And I swear to God, within a week he had signed me. Like it was it was wonderful. It was like it was truly magical. Like he was just really ready to from whenever it was, it was like enough time had passed. Um, the book was way different enough. It was clearly working again. I mean, like it was, yeah. is it weird if I say it's kind of like your book came out? <laughs> it did, exactly. I was, there was this whole other identity that I was just like trying to force onto it. And it just was really, and, ev and everybody knew 
that it was ludicrous. But me, wow, you're blowing my mind. This is like three years of therapy in one phone call. Um, well, um, like we therapy, our hour is almost up. So oh. <laughs> I, have, I have one more question for you. I just, I wanted to give sure. you a chance. Uh, given the nature of this book, um, yeah. and I know there are so many great organizations who are working either to help people who have been through conversion therapy or to stop it or both. Do you have resources that you'd recommend or, or Absolutely. organizations uh, you want to mention? I have two. Uh, Born Perfect, which is uh, this wonderful, wonderful organization. If you've, if you've seen news stories of like this city or this county is this state has passed a, a, a law that has banned conversion therapy, they're usually kind of the ones behind the legislation mm. on it. They're really working with that. Um, they were formed in 2014 by the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Um, I've spoken with several of these people. I've, you know, I've, I've been able to, lucky enough, to work with some of them. When I, and when I was at uh, my company, Attention, they are wonderful. They have tons of resources here. You can donate to them if you want to help uh, the cause. They have toolkits and resources. They've they've got education about like the different laws and legislation state by state. So if you know, like, hey, these states and cities are there's currently legislation on their way. You can, you can call up the legislators in that area and be like, I super support this bill. Please pass it. They, they educate. There's a lot of education. Um, and then they also have a survivor network. So um, there's them. And then the Trevor Project, which everybody knows is, is this right. very wonderful um, LGBTQ organization. They also have survivor resources. They also, they have a, they have a 50 states, 50 bills plan that they're trying to do. They're trying to get obviously a nationwide ban on conversion therapy, which would be great, but something that, you know, both of these organizations and uh, people who are, who are survivors themselves and are still active in trying to uh, fight this will tell you that it's, um, it's a, it, it has to be done grassroots. There is such a, um, you know, there's different laws in different states and each one, you know, it's, it's very difficult because um, I even bring this up in the book as well, where a lot of these laws are passed there for minors only. And then if they're over 18, Right. Technically, they're making their own decisions. However, as we've talked before, these families can hold lots of strings on these kids, um, even after they're 18, that will force them into these situations. And it's a little hard to legislate that. And it's also hard to legislate to religious organizations. So yeah. a lot of these bans are secular. So um, it's definitely one of those things where like, it's a twofold thing, which is just fight it in legislation and then fight it through educating yourself. Um, and the worst thing you can do is say it's not happening anymore and to deny these survivor stories because um, there's more and more survivors all the time. And, and, and in general, like we, like we saw, it's, it's, um, it's not necessarily a camp. It doesn't have to be a facility. It doesn't even have to necessarily be um, someone else. It can just be your parent saying, you better be this way or right. these things will happen. That itself yeah. is a conversion therapy. So a lot of these characters realize that their conversion therapy began months and months and years and years before they ever arrived um, at the camp. So I think that's something to be very vigilant about. Well, thank you. We'll put those resources on the Case Code website when we air this episode. And Adam, this has been truly delightful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Adam or to pre-order Surrender Your Sons, visit adamsassbooks.com. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Next month, I'll talk to New York Times bestselling author Lev Grossman about his new novel, The Silver Arrow. 
The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 